Hi, I'm Rita. I don't know why I did that, but I'm really wondering now why I did that. I am a member of Al-Anon. I am happy to be here at this convention. Not right this moment, but I am happy to be here. About six months ago, I was talking to some of my coworkers about when I was taking vacation, and I said, well, I'm taking a vacation in August. I, I'm going to a convention, and I have to go because I'm going to talk. And they said, well, what are you going to talk about? And I said, well, I'm going to talk about boundaries. And they laughed at me, and I was offended by that. Um, because I think my boundaries are, are pretty good. But I realized they didn't think they were very good because they didn't know me before. And I guess that's what this is kind of about. It's about my journey. I'm not where I need to be. Um, there are days I'm not good at it at all. But I am trying. It is it is a journey. And when I come to some of these um talks and people talk about their significant other, their spouse, people kind of look around and they're like, oh, I wonder where that person is, so they can kind of watch their reaction when you say something about them. So I thought I would just cut right through that and tell you that my husband is sitting right over there in the plaid shirt. <laughs> so you can just, okay, do you want to come up here so they don't have to, Okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Um, they say that children really learn from their parents. They model from their parents. And if that was really the case with boundaries, I would have the best boundaries because my mother was very, very good at this. If I was going to write a coffee table book, it would be everything I, I need to know about boundaries I learned from my mother. She was very, very good at it. She got married later in life and she was very happy to have a husband and children and we were her world we were her priority she cleaned and she cooked every day and she baked and she took very good care of herself about an hour before my dad would come home she would she would put her feet up she would relax she would meditate then she would freshen up put on lipstick and greet my dad and things ran pretty smoothly. Um, she was pretty healthy. However, I saw that as kind of boring and selfish because she didn't drive, which is a boundary in itself, and she was never the room parent. She was never the Girl Scout leader. She didn't come for hot dog day. She never went on a field trip. And I made up my mind that I was going to do things differently. I was going to volunteer for everything. I was going to save the world, and that was pretty much my mission because I saw that as a very giving, selfless thing to do. So what I did was when I was in junior high, <clears throat> I, um, I found the people that had the most problems. If they had a lot of problems, well, I was friends with them. And I remember my dad saying to me once, why do you find the people with the most problems? You spend so much time talking to them that you don't have any time to focus on yourself or do what you need to do. Your grades are poor, you're always tired, what's wrong? 
Um, but to me, I was doing the right thing. I was being very selfless, and to me that was honorable. That was different than what my mother did. So in high school, of course, I found a guy to date who uh, was from an alcoholic family, if you can imagine that. And my family was very predictable. My dad came home at the same time. Of course, my mother had dinner. We said the rosary every time we took a trip that was over like a half hour. Um, it was pretty boring. So I met this guy, and his dad was an alcoholic, so you never knew when he was coming home. You never knew what kind of mood he was going to be in when he came home. Um, they went to great, we went to great, expensive restaurants, and my family never went out to eat because my mom cooked all the time. We didn't have to go. So I was very, this family was very dysfunctional, and I thought it was so exciting because my family was so boring. I was just really attracted to that. So we dated for probably five years, but the problem was he just was not ambitious enough for me. He dropped a lot of classes. It took him too long to get through college, and I needed to attach myself to somebody who was going to do more. Um, and I know it's because I didn't have a lot of confidence in myself, and I, I needed to find someone who was going to do something to put me in a position because, of course, remember, I was going to pretty much save the world. Um, so, gosh, I'm further than I thought. Um, so I was actually, between my junior and senior year of college, I was doing a um, an field experience for my major, which was family services, which is actually out of the home ec department. And I was volunteering in a hospital, and there was a man who had been beat up. He was in a coma, and he had all these tubes, and he was, like, pulling the tubes out of himself. And this was over 20 years ago, but hospitals were still on to this, maybe we should be a little cost-effective. And they were paying a nurse to sit there and watch him. So they got this idea, I know, let's just pay or just have this volunteer sit there. So that's what I did. And his roommate is now my husband. And he was sitting there, and um, he was going to have surgery in a couple of hours. So I said, uh, there was nobody there with him. And I really thought that was strange. And I said, well, who's here with you? Um, you know, your parents, your girlfriend. And he said, well, my dad works. My mom and I, we don't really get along. And... I have a younger brother, he's five, my mom can't come, I don't have a girlfriend. And right away, the antennas just went up in my head because I felt sorry for this guy. He was there having surgery alone. And of course, what I thought he really needed was me. So I was very attracted to him, and to fast forward, we got married. And... Then one day he said, we, well, this was before when we were dating, he said, you know, I think I'm going to go to medical school. And I thought, that is a great idea because I would be a really good doctor's wife. Um, 
I could make little exam snacks when he's studying through school. And then I could have wonderful parties because I was a home ec major, remember, and this would be really good. So I, you know, I just thought that was wonderful. So we got married. We had children. We had one before medical school, one during medical school, and one after medical school. And things really went went pretty well. I had a lot of hope. Um, I was pretty lonely while he was in school because I was very isolated. We lived in a neighborhood with older people, and I really didn't have friends and a lot of support. Um, we were really this perfect little family, though. And, of course, as you can guess, when my children were in school, I was doing everything. I was the room parent. I went on field trips. I was a Girl Scout leader, the religion teacher. Uh, we had great parties for the holidays. I would make the little dirt cups, you know, with the little worms, gummy worms coming out of them. I mean, I was really, I was really good at this, and I felt... I felt important, and I felt valued, and I felt needed. And I started to take on more and more and more because if I said no, I, I felt guilty. And, of course, I thought I could do these things better than a lot of other people, and so I just kept doing them. I was saving the world. I couldn't really save my husband. There was something that just wasn't quite right but I didn't know what. I should have been happy, but but I really wasn't. He was using, and, you know, that denial really kicks in. A part of me knew and a part of me didn't know. Um, he got sicker and sicker, and I got sicker and sicker. And as the disease got worse, I found myself really resenting the very things that I had volunteered to do. I had signed up for this. Nobody made me do it. But it was getting kind of out of control. The journey really wasn't fun anymore, but I really didn't know why. And then my husband had an intervention, and he went to treatment. And it was really when he was in treatment and during family week that I really started to understand what started to happen and to know that I wasn't alone. Uh, when he was in treatment, I remember a phone conversation where he called and he talked about um, what he was learning. And I said, well, I, I have so much to do. I have to do this and this. And, and he said, well, you know, one thing I'm learning here is about boundaries and that I can say no to things. I need to say no, and it's something that you might want to do too. (sighs) Well, I was a little suspicious of this place to begin with because some of the things they were saying, and this, you know, this just, um, I was convinced. This was some kind of a cult. And um, as he talked about boundaries, he also said, you know, they told me here at our family, one of our family sessions, that I should find out what the word enmeshment means because we're enmeshed. So why don't you go to the library and look in some psychology books and find out what that means? So, of course, I did, and I couldn't find it, and I certainly do know what that means today. Um, but we were very, we were very enmeshed. I remember when he was in medical school, and 
he took a test and I was talking to one of his friends and I said, how, how did the test go? And he said, oh, it, it was, oh, it was okay. He said, but Mike did really well. And I thought, oh, that's great. I said, you know, this guy's name was Mike too. I said, whenever Mike does well, I feel like I did well. And this guy is now a psychiatrist and I'm sure I'm sure he didn't think anything of this. You know, this probably sounded normal, but now that I look back, that was really, really sick. But that's just the way, it's just the way it was. Um, I was really getting sicker and sicker. And when he was there, they told him this thing. They said, you know, sometimes the codependent is sicker than the addict or alcoholic. Then I knew this was a brainwashing place because, you know, he, he was there. He had all these rules. He couldn't do anything in here. I was totally free to walk around talking to myself all day long and nobody was putting me anywhere. So, you know, there's this, I was convinced there was something wrong, wrong with them. Um, I'm going to read a page from Alan Ann how Elanon works, and I don't have my glasses, so I'm going to hold it out here, but um, it kind of describes what happened. Many of us find it difficult even to begin the self-focus process because we have lost track of the separation between ourselves and others, especially the alcoholic. Having interceded for so long on the alcoholic's behalf, constantly reacting, worrying, pleasing, covering up, smoothing over, or bailing him or her out of trouble, we have often taken upon our shoulders responsibilities that don't rightfully belong to us. The result is that we lose the sense of where we leave off and the alcoholic begins. We have become so enmeshed with another person's life and problems that we have lost the knowledge that we are separate individuals. When asked about ourselves, we often respond by talking about the alcoholic. We perceive ourselves to be so connected that if something happens to the alcoholic, it seems only right, only natural for us to respond. Many of us even confuse this absence of personal boundaries with love and caring. For example, from the moment the alcoholic goes out the door, we sit immobilized, unable to do anything but think obsessively, obsessively about him or her. We lose the ability to distinguish between the alcoholic and ourselves until the alcoholic's past, current, and potential actions become our sole focus. This is not love, it's obsession. When we cease to live our own lives because we are so preoccupied with the lives of others, our behavior is motivated by fear. Not only is it harmful to a relationship, to hover anxiously or suspiciously over a loved one night a loved one night and day it is also extremely self-destructive and that's really where i was at um, at the treatment center they suggested we go to alanon and what they told us was if you're if you go to alanon the odds of your significant other relapsing are much lower well, that is all I needed to hear. I was there um, because I was going to really help. So I started going to Al-Anon, and I did start to learn about what had happened. Um, I also went to work. 
I went to work partially motivated out of fear because I was so afraid of this relapse thing that people had. And I knew that I needed a diversion if that did happen. So I went to work for an agency and I did home visitation for teenage moms. And that is the place where you really need boundaries. If you've, if any of you have ever done home visitation, it's very difficult when you go into someone's home to kind of draw that line. You become a part of, of their life and then they want to know more about your life. And so I had to be very careful and that's where my Al-Anon really helped. My husband did relapse. He went back to treatment um, for 10 weeks. He lost his job. Um, he lost his license. He had felony charges because the pharmacist reported him to the state police rather than the state medical association. So there were a lot of consequences. and. I was very angry. I was very fearful. I would have to say that I was more angry than anything. And when I think about dysfunction, there's there's kind of like those two extremes. I could be enmeshed or I could disengage. And if I'm or if if I'm enmeshed, I sacrifice my individual differences for the unity. But when I'm disengaged, I have a separateness at the expense of the unity, and that's where I was. The first treatment, I was enmeshed. The second treatment, I was pretty disengaged. He, um, I'm going to read a part from Courage to Change because we talk about boundaries, but there's also those, those walls. Al-Anon taught me the difference between walls and boundaries. Walls are solid and rigid. They keep others out and they keep me trapped inside. Do my defenses keep me safe or do they isolate me? And at that point, my defenses were really isolating me. I detached with anger and I built walls. He went to a local hospital to detox, and I remember driving over there and getting lost. And I didn't know where I was going, and I didn't really want to get there. I would not ask for directions. I was eating up the time that I had to be with him because I was so angry. Sometimes I think the physical boundaries are good. When I think about treatment, in a way, it was a good thing because we had a physical boundary. And I was very mad. It was probably good he wasn't with me. I found that I needed the time to process and to sort things out. Um, It protected me from real uncontrollable emotions, things I might have said. And it gave me time to come up with some new actions. I was really building a lot of emotional walls that year that he was off and he didn't work. I was working, so I was kind of throwing myself into work. But a friend of mine who's now my sister-in-law had dinner with me one night, and she said, you know, you have got to stop this. 
you have got to either commit or get divorced, but you cannot keep doing this to Mike and to yourself. It was just going on too long. Um, I had built some real walls. In Hope for Today, there's a page that talks about when I think of boundaries, it helps if I think of a castle and a lake. Boundaries are the drawbridge connecting the castle with the world. Usually the drawbridge is down and people can walk freely back and forth. However, when danger is sensed, the drawbridge rises to protect the castle. To protect myself from the dangers of my alcoholic family, I shut down, and I kept my drawbridge closed to guard my feelings and thoughts, and that is exactly what I had done. I had, like, built this moat around myself, and there were, like, alligators in the moat because I was so afraid to get close to this person who had hurt me. Another important thing I learned in Al-Anon was to examine my motives. Um, That setting a healthy boundary keeps me safe and it keeps me thriving. There are ways that I set unhealthy boundaries. I call them boundaries, but they're pretty unhealthy. And I'm going to talk about some of those. One way is I avoid taking risks. I call it a boundary because I'm afraid to do something. Or I punish someone who's hurt me. And I can do that. I can, I can detach and punish the person for hurting me. And the way that I do that oftentimes is to seek revenge. You know, I'm going to get back at you. I'm not going to get close to you because you hurt me. And there's a Chinese proverb that says, Before one seeks revenge, he must first dig two graves. And that's pretty much what I was doing. I was punishing the other person, but I was punishing myself. And I know that time is really precious today, and that if I'm angry with someone or I'm not speaking to someone, I could say, oh, this is just better for me. And maybe it is, because I don't deserve to be treated poorly, but yet there are times when I need to... Um, realize that time is precious and make some amends. The other thing I do is I can use boundaries to get out of doing things that I really don't want to do and call them a boundary. I can rationalize very well. If I died, I think my tombstone would say one of the greatest rationalizers who ever lived because I am good at that. And so an example would be if my husband said, you know, I really want to go see my family in Chicago, and I would think, well, I really want to do other things, so I really want to sleep in and clean the refrigerator, so I know I'll say, well, I would love to go with you, but my Al-Anon has kicked in, and I'm going to set a boundary, and no, I can't go. Um... And that's the kind of thing that I will do. I will say this is a boundary because I don't want to do something. And I have to be very careful of that, that I need to do the next right thing. I need to do what's best for myself and for the people I love. And that's what's so hard. It's the balance. It's the, is it a wall or is it a boundary? Is it safe or is it unhealthy? So 
So I have to remember that it's about protecting me physically, emotionally, spiritually, every way. This has really been about progress and not perfection. There are things that I do today differently than I did pre-Alanon. I know I still need to really grow in this area. That's one reason why I volunteered to do this, because I need to work on it. I have a lot of trouble setting boundaries when it comes to work because I feel like I'm needed and I feel valued there. And it fills, it fills a need for me. It feeds my ego. And so I don't use, I don't use good boundaries and I hurt people I love because I'm not setting those healthy boundaries. One thing I'm better at today is self-care. If you flew, you probably had the little spiel about when the oxygen drops down, the mask, you put it on, and first you put it on yourself, and then you put it on your child. And I have to remember that. I have to remember that I have to take care of me to take care of anybody else. I have to actually tell myself that if I don't take care of me, I'm not any good to anyone else, and so it's selfish of me not to take care of me. That's how twisted my thinking is. So that's what I try and do. And I use this simple thing. Um, it's a needs wheel. There's a lot of different tools. But this one talks about meeting your needs physically, emotionally, creatively, spiritually, socially, and intellectually. And I try and look at all those areas. And if I'm pretty much meeting things in each area, which I rarely ever am at the same time, then I feel more in balance. And that's something actually IDAA does for me. It meets a lot of these needs, socially, intellectually, of course, spiritually. I'm making a little baby Afghan, so I've got my creative in here while I'm here. Um, and I think that a lot of things, although I talked about modeling in my mother, I think sometimes things skip a generation. My mother had these great boundaries. My kids have great boundaries. Maybe they got it from their dad, but they certainly didn't get it from their mom. My children, I will ask them to do something, and they'll be like, well, I need to take a nap, or I need to unwind, or I need to do my homework, and no problem. I try and appeal to little codependent traits to feel sorry for me and help me. Never works. They can set some really good boundaries. We had a graduation party for my daughter who graduated from high school. Two hours before people were coming for her party, she was out running. I'm like, what is wrong with this picture? You know, I'm running around stuffing things in the oven, you know, so nobody sees. I mean, like, pans, not food. Um, And she's out there running. So... My children do have some pretty good boundaries. I've also learned to delegate. Delegating is hard for me because I'm not a good manager and I like to do it myself. I don't like to feel other people can do it as well as I can do it. And when I delegate, I have to do something really hard for me. I have to ask for help. And asking for help is hard because, one, you might say no, Or two, you might do it some way that I don't think is good enough, and I have to really 
I have to let go. Even with my children, if I need help, I have to let them do the fun jobs too. You know, I can take out the garbage. They could light the candles before company comes. I have to, I have to let go. That's really what delegating is for me. It's letting go. I can also ask people for help. I have a sponsor who, who will talk to me and help me process and reframe. She doesn't tell me what to do, but she really helps me decide what I need to do. I'm also in the mental health field, so I have a supervisor who I can bounce things off of. Because if it was my way, I would like take people home with me. Um, I asked my husband, hey, can we get a foster child now that all our children are leaving? He's like, not if I'm living here. Um, but I, I still want to save people. I have, I have to set these boundaries at work. If I have a session with somebody and they leave and I'm feeling a lot better, like I've gotten things off my chest, that's a problem. That's a boundary. And I have to be very, very careful. I can also ask my husband sometimes for help with my boundaries. Not because I can't make up my mind, not because he tells me what to do, but because he has known me for a long time and he sees how I respond to things. And I believe he loves me, right? And and he wants what's best for me. And he's he's going to be honest with me. And so that's helpful. Even my children... Because of this program, and they're coming to IDAA in the past, they're pretty healthy. Even though they don't go to meetings at home, they've had a program, and and they're they're very helpful. I also have to look at acceptance. I cannot save the world. If I say no to things, things go on. And a lot of times things go a lot better when I'm not involved. And that's kind of hard to admit, but I know that that's really true. And also, some people will never be happy. No matter what boundary I set or not set, no matter how much I do for them, they're not going to be pleased. My sponsor tells this joke at least once a year in our Al-Anon meeting. She talks about a wife who decides she's going to get up and make breakfast for her husband. And she knows he likes fried eggs. So she fries she fries a couple eggs for him. She puts it down in front of him. He looks at the food. He looks up at her and he said, I wanted scrambled eggs. So the next day she gets up. She scrambles those two eggs. She puts it down in front of him and he looks and he said, I wanted fried eggs today. So the next day, she's, she's not going to be duped again. She fries one egg, and she scrambles the other egg. He sits down. She puts it in front of him. He looks down. He looks at her. And he says, um, I forgot where I was. Um, are these scrambled eggs? Oh, yeah, one of each. So, scrambles one, fries the other, he looks down, looks up at her and says, you fried the wrong egg. (laughs) And that tells me 
And if I had if I had done it in sequence and hadn't lost track, it would have been even better probably. But um, it tells me that I just can't make some people happy. And I certainly can't make a person in active addiction happy. And even though my husband is not actively using chemicals, I'm around a lot of people who probably are, and I just can't make everybody happy. I have to examine my motives. I have to really think about why I'm doing what I'm doing. When I set a boundary, what's my motive for doing it? Is it to punish someone? Is it to get back at someone? Or is it to really protect myself and keep myself healthy and help myself thrive and be better? Today, I choose healthier people. I don't look for the sickest people to save. I look for people who are working on themselves. And I, I look for people who can laugh at themselves. And people who can laugh at me when I laugh at myself. And so just the people I choose to surround myself with makes a difference. I don't choose people who are going to be angry with me if I set a boundary or be passive-aggressive because they don't like the fact that I said no. Another important thing for me with setting boundaries is self-improvement. The better I feel about myself, the better I do. Someone talked yesterday about self-worth. And if I feel confident, it's easier for me to say no to people. So I really have to work on me. I have a magnet that I really like, and it says, um, do one thing every day that scares you. And I'm going to have done my one thing already today. But... That's important that I take risks because I can't improve if I don't take risks. You know, part of marrying my husband and his going to school and his doing things, it was a way for me to to be home and not take risks. So it, it's a lot harder for me to be out with with people. Um, when I first started going to Al-Anon, I was going to a lot of Al-Anon, a lot of meetings, and everyone I hung around with was in a program. So although I felt I was working this great program, I wasn't really practicing that program with non-program people, which, as you know, is quite different. And now I have that opportunity um, to do that. I also have to protect my program. I go to a Wednesday morning meeting and I adjust my work schedule so that I can do that. And I can't let things get in the way of that. IDAA is a priority. It's a good place for me. Um, And I have to give myself permission to make mistakes. I can learn from my mistakes. Actually, that's how I learn best is from my mistakes. If my boundary is hurtful or offensive to somebody else, I can always make amends and and do the 10th step. I can't worry that much about every boundary. Is this a boundary? Because I can change. And that's what I like about this program. I learned I can start my day over at any time. That boundaries aren't set in stone. They can move around. Um, This is really an ongoing journey for me. I'm going to read a couple more things encouraged to change. And unlike the walls, the boundaries are flexible, 
changeable, removable. So it's up to me how open or closed I'll be at any given time. They let me decide what behavior is acceptable, not only from others, but from myself. Today I can say no with love instead of hostility, so it doesn't put an end to my relationships. Today I can love myself enough to look for healthier ways to protect myself, ways that don't close everyone out. It's really about balance for me with boundaries. Um, I went from not having any boundaries at one point to having very rigid boundaries and having walls. Walls can become like a prison, and I have to constantly reevaluate and change and learn from others. And I'm really not there. There are days I'm so good at this, and there are days that, yeah, people laugh when I say I'm going to talk about boundaries. But it is a journey. You know, it is that progress, not perfection. It's really one day at a time. I'm, I'm getting better and better. And I'm grateful to be here. Thank you.